0: Hello and welcome to the Herbert Smith Freehills Inside the Headlines podcast. Every year we go out to campuses across the UK and show students some examples of the work we do and the work they could be doing should they join us as a trainee. This year we're creating a series of podcasts so you can hear from the people who worked on each project to understand what they did and get a behind-the-scenes look at what it's like to work on them. I'm Asil Barguthi, I'm an associate at Herbert Smith Freehills in New York. I'll be hosting today's podcast and speaking with Christian Leithly and Lucila Marchini about a recent case they worked on for Costa Rica as the government entered into a dispute with a group of investors. If you have any feedback or want to know more about graduate opportunities at Herbert Smith Freehills, please visit our website careers.herbertsmithfreehills.com slash UK grads. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Please, could you introduce yourselves, your name, your role at Herbert Smith Freehills, and your role on this particular case?
1: My name is Lucila Marchini. I'm an international arbitration associate at HSF in the New York office. I'm originally from Argentina, and at the time that I joined HSF to work on this case, I was a visiting attorney, and now uh, I work permanently in the New York office.
2: Uh, My name is Christian Lethley. I'm a partner in the International Arbitration Group at Herbert Smith Freehills. I've been based in the New York office for a number of years, although originally from England, and I'm also the head of the firm's Latin America Group.
0: Fantastic. And so just to step back, what was it that Herbert Smith Freehills was approached to do, and, and how did you do it, and what was the outcome of the case ultimately?
2: So Costa Rica was sued by these American investors And they were sued through this process that's connected to, in some ways, the World Bank. It's an international tribunal that they went to. And that required an external counsel to Costa Rica. Costa Rica has its own government lawyers. But because this is a very specialist area, they asked for international law firms like ours to offer our services. So we went into a competitive process and we won that process because of our experience and our team and our linguistic skills. We had a very strong Spanish, native Spanish speaking team, almost except for myself, although I speak Spanish, but not as a native. And then we worked as co-counsel to the government lawyers who were based in Costa Rica.
0: So what's the background here um, in terms of the events leading up to the dispute and the actual case? Who were the parties involved and, and what was the original incident?
1: Well, it's very difficult to summarize in a few words what was the case about, but the case concerned a parcel of land in the Pacific coast of Costa Rica, and there was a group of American investors who in 2002 decided to acquire these parcels of land and to build up a project, a touristic project called Las Olas. So this group of investors said that they obtained all the permits for the project and began to developing it and marketing it in the U.S. Apparently, a group of local communities surrounding the area complained because they noticed that there were wetlands in the site. A wetland is a mixture of soil and water, and it creates a great space for wildlife. And they also noticed that these investors, by building the project, they were distracting the wetlands in the area. And also they were affecting the forest. So they brought complaints with the local authorities in Costa Rica. The local authorities decided to conduct an investigation and actually they found that there were wetlands and forests which were affected by this development. So the local authorities decided to shut down the project And one of the reasons for that was the environmental concern for Costa Rica. It was very important for Costa Rica to enforce the environmental laws, and that's why they decided to shut down the project. Apart from shutting down the projects, the local authorities decided to conduct criminal proceedings against the American investors. But unfortunately, one of the leading investors of the group, Mr. David Aven, tried to escape from Costa Rica and he moved back to the U.S. So he did not appear in the trial. After this, he decided with the other investors to commence uh, international arbitration proceedings against Costa Rica because they considered that the measures that Costa Rica took uh, distracted their investment. So
0: what legal action had been taken before HSF was engaged on the case?
1: So the American investors filed it is called a notice of claim. They filed this notice of claim under international treaty called the CAFTA. And in this notice, they communicated to Costa Rica about the issue and that they wanted to commence international arbitration proceedings. Sorry, Lucila, could you just spell out
0: the acronym DR CAFTA? I understand the first bit is Dominican
1: Republic? Yes, it's the Dominican Republic Central America Free Trade Agreement. So some of the countries of Central America and the United States are state parties to this treaty. And after this, Costa Rica replied to this letter, and then they sent a notice of arbitration. This second notice is to say, we are about to commence international arbitration proceedings. Mm -hmm. Basically, the American investors contended that they obtained all the permits to commence the project, and they denied that there were wetlands and forests in the area.
0: So what is international arbitration and where would this case fall in that broader world of international arbitration?
2: So international arbitration, it's a litigation process. So where most people are used to going to their national courts to solve a dispute and you litigate in front of a judge, international arbitration happens when you have international disputes and one or both parties don't want to go to someone's local courts because they don't think they'll get a fair trial. So that's often captured by people writing clauses into contracts between companies and also in treaties between countries. And this is an example of the latter where in this DR CAFTA, the Dominican Republic Central American Free Trade Agreement, there's a provision which says if someone who is an investor from one member state, in this instance, it was the United States has a dispute with a member state that's Costa Rica, then you go to international arbitration. Now, international arbitration can come in different forms, but basically you try to set up a tribunal of international lawyers, and you have three international lawyers, and we had three in this case. There was a Mexican president, an American, and a Venezuelan. And they were basically our judges, our arbitrators. And we convened in Washington, D.C., at the offices of the World Bank, which is a well-known institution where these hearings take place. And we have an agreed set of rules that govern the whole process, And we then have basically the whole case litigated in very much the same way that you might in any court, but with a slightly different process and a slightly different timeline. That's international arbitration. And it's now very popular, and it's extremely popular for countries because, as I say, they avoid going to some countries' own state courts.
0: That was very useful. Thanks for that explanation, Christian. And so, what was it that the investors, the American investors, were claiming in the case against Costa Rica? And what were they seeking to achieve by bringing their claim?
1: So this international treaty, the DR-CAFTA, provides for certain standards that the states have to comply with when dealing with invest- foreign investors. So the investors have to prove that they have a case because the state did not comply with those standards set forth in the treaty. So basically in our case, they made uh, they argue that the state failed to afford them fair and equitable treatment. They were treated discriminatorily. The state expropriated the right to invest and investment, and they did not provide compensation. This sounds very legal, but these are the terms of the year CAFTA, which the investors have to provide proof and demonstrate to the arbitral tribunal. And
0: so, Christian, why would you say that this case was particularly relevant or important for Costa Rica?
2: Well, first of all, Costa Rica is not sued that often. Countries are typically not sued a lot, and... This is a very unique area of international law, which is why it's very exciting for us to be involved, because normally states can only really be sued by other states, by other countries. And this treaty, and there are a number of these treaties now, allow for a private investor to sue a state. That's quite radical. Historically, that was never really possible. So in and of itself, and now it's increasingly popular, this is a very exciting area of law and exciting area of practice, because it allows us in this situation to represent a country which is a great privilege to represent the entire nation. So this case was a very important example of if you have an investor who went with certain expectations and then those expectations were changed because the government had to intervene and the local authorities had to intervene to protect the environment, who should win? Should the Americans? Should the foreign investors who wanted to build their site, their hotels, their villas? Or should the environment be protected according to local law? And that was... Not an easy question to answer because the Americans came with certain expectations they felt were protected by international law. Meanwhile, the Costa Ricans said, no, this is our environment and international law should allow us the chance to protect that. So that's what we were disputing. That's what we were arguing about. And that's what Herbert Smith Freehills was involved in.
0: So basically, there were arguments made on both sides. What did the international tribunal that the claims were brought before ultimately find? And what was the result of the case.
2: So Costa Rica won. We were very happy. We were successful. We won comprehensively in the sense that the defense was supported by all three members of the tribunal, as I said, the Mexican president, the American and the Venezuelan arbitrators. They found that the steps that Costa Rica had taken were were lawful, that they were valid under international law, and that the investors, whilst they had maybe gone in with certain expectations, that they could not have expected. Costa Rica taking any other steps than they did, so the land remains protected. The construction can always still be pursued, and this was an important fact. The tribunal wasn't saying that the investors couldn't continue to try to develop; they simply had to develop in accordance with Costa Rican environmental law.
0: And who was the counterpart, or was there an entity that you were working with within Costa Rican government? And what kind of dynamic was there? What kind of relationship was there? If you could tell us a little bit about the relationship there.
1: So we were working hand-in-hand with the Ministry of Foreign Trade in Costa Rica, which is called COMEX, uh, with its legal team. I think that we did that great work together, uh, and that was part of our success. It was not that we were working with them as local counsel, but as co counsel So we count of them mostly on all the information, all the documents that we need to deal with from Costa Rica. Also, we work with them with witnesses and the experts, because much of the information that we needed to provide to the tribunal came from Costa Rica, and we wouldn't be able to do that without the team. Speaking
0: of the team, who were the members of the team uh, at HSF that were on this case?
2: So we had a great team of about five or six attorneys from Herbert Smith Freehills and about five attorneys from Comex. We're very proud to say, actually, that we were a 90% plus female team. I think myself and the paralegal were the only guys allowed into the room. (laughs) And we had five female attorneys from Costa Rica, as well as five from HSF and then myself and, and a paralegal. The, the profile of those of us involved from Herbert Smith Freehills was the broad mix of across the whole, the whole level of seniority myself at the time of counsel, and a couple of senior associates, and then of course Lucilla and others who were helping and supporting from London. So we were cross-office, we were cross-continent, cross-languages as well. There were English and Spanish speakers. We corresponded with our client mostly in Spanish. Uh, We were drafting in both Spanish and English. And we had various experts as well. We had wetland specialists, soil specialists, some of whom came from various parts of the world. So it was a very international mix.
0: And did you find that the workloads required uh, complete dedication to the case? Was there balance between this case and other cases? How would you say it uh, was situated within your broader work stream?
1: Not the whole team was 100% dedicated, but I have to say that at least me and the other associate, we were working twenty-four hours, no I'm kidding, Uh, completely on the case.
0: 23 and a half. (laughs)
1: But uh, the case was very demanding and it was necessary only to focus on on the preparation of the pleadings, dealing with the experts, dealing with the witnesses, with Costa Rica government. So there was the only possibility was to be 100 percent concentrated during a couple of months to this case, because the case was very demanding. If you check online the procedural calendar that we have, it is true that we have three months, for example, to prepare response to um, the, the arguments posed by the investors. But during those three months, we have to deal with all work streams, which were running at the same time. So the team required at least two people fully dedicated to this case.
0: What would you say would be expected of a trainee that was brought in to work on this type of case or a similar case? What are the deliverables you would expect? What support would you need from a trainee working with you on the case team?
1: As the deadlines were very short compared to the extensive work that we had to do, the trainee had to engage with the facts, with the legal arguments, very quickly. So once the trainee was very familiar with the case, we uh, assigned him uh, certain areas of international law that they need research drafting. And we discussed with the trainee the content of the pleadings, we asked the trainee to prepare certain sections of our briefs in response to claimants' arguments. Of course, all review and commented on the sections that the trainee was preparing. But in fact, if you look into the brief that we submitted, you can see some sections that were prepared by the trainee. The hearings were live stream, stream in the internet. And even if the trainee was located in London and was not physically attending the hearing, she was able to listen and watch the hearing. And this was very important for us because she was taking notes. We asked her at the same time to do some research, to prepare bullet point for us. So it was like she was attending the hearing in the sea.
2: I think it's worth adding that everyone has a very important role. So Herbert Smith Freehills, I've worked in a number of other firms. And we as a firm, I think, have a very good tradition of involving everyone at every level and putting a huge amount of responsibility on those who are willing to accept it. So as a trainee, you may be doing, in addition to research, helping drafting. You'll be involved in client meetings, involved with witnesses and with experts. So you'll be doing absolutely everything that the rest of us are doing. It's not that we tend to divide it up so that people don't get to see the enjoyable parts. And as we experience, that includes attending the hearing There a... The trainees essentially who were in New York who attended the hearing and those who were in London would watch through the live streaming that took place. We were streamed through the internet for the whole hearing live and had a number of people watching. A number of people sending rude messages by email as well during the <laughs> performance, which is very appreciated from our best friends. But it was a really good involvement. The, the whole experience when you work on a case like this is it's rather like a performance building up to a crescendo for the hearing. And so everything has to come together and be synchronized. All of our work, all of our experience, all of our preparation. And so that really is a true team effort involving everyone and all the trainees.
0: How long do these cases take generally, would you say?
2: Our case took about three years or so. That was relatively quick. There are investor state cases. And what we mean by investor state is where you have an investor suing a state. These investor state cases can often go for five or ten years. We're involved in another case where we're representing the Kingdom of Spain. That's been going for at least six or seven years now.
0: Is that timeline, would you say, common to these types of cases? And is there something specific about being on a case for as long as five years or ten years?
2: Yeah, the cases can run for that period of time. It's quite quite usual. They, they run for that length of time for a few reasons. Obviously, when a state's involved the tribunals are very sensitive to the fact that a state may be sued for a significant amount of money and they want to get the process right. So they want to give everyone, particularly a state, which sometimes takes a little bit more time to organize itself and to go through certain processes to allow them to defend themselves. So that's that's built in a little bit to the expectations. The other thing is to remember there's no appeal or not really an appeal in the same way you would in a, in a national or a state court. So it's really, you've got to get it right once and the tribunals are acutely aware of that. So the fact gathering, the process, the hearing, the deliberations then of the tribunal before they write their award all takes time because apart from some very limited circumstances in these types of cases, there's no second chance.
0: What would you say for you each individually was the highlight of working on this case?
2: I mean, other than generally, I think the real privilege of representing a country, which when I was a student and I was studying international law at university during my law degree, I mean, this was a total dream to, to represent a country. So that, that I never underestimated and have practiced 20 years, that, that thrill never disappeared. The particular enjoyment, there were maybe two things that I really remember and enjoyed from the actual experience of the hearing. The first was the participation of the United States so, as a signatory to the treaty, the DR-CAFTA, the United States was allowed to make representations because they also had an vested interest as to how this treaty would be interpreted. It's a multilateral treaty, which means that it's more than just Costa Rica that's going to to benefit or lose from any decision. So, it was a great thrill to see the representatives from the U.S. government participate. They were in the hearing room with us. They made representations. They they gave some. Written submissions and also spoke during the proceedings. Um, for me, the other the other thrill was being able to wish my daughter a happy birthday with a post-it note on the back of my computer screen, because <laughs> it was being live streamed, so she could turn on her TV and see a little birthday wish uh, on the back of the screen, which was
0: <laughs> certainly ingenious way of wishing <laughs> yes, happy birthday.
2: Exactly.
1: And so, for you, Lucilla, would you say? Well, I have to say that the highlight for me. Was going to the World Bank. We took many pictures in the World Bank when we saw the setting, the tribunal where they were sitting, and we had opposing counsel in front of us. Everything was very formal. So I have to say that we took a lot of pictures that were on Instagram.
0: (laughs) So at the beginning, uh, when you were first approached, you were first approached by Costa Rica to represent the state in the case. What were the first things that you did? What What are the things that you would go about doing at the beginning of a case like this?
2: So Costa Rica is the respondent, which means we're defending. And that means we have to understand what the claimant's case is. And they are basically building a case saying that Costa Rica breached certain obligations. So the first thing we do is we look at what those obligations are, and then we look at the facts. And it's a very big exercise of understanding the chronology of what happened, really getting into the detail of one week this happened, the next week this happened. This is what the documents show us. This is what the witnesses are telling us. And we begin to build a picture. And with that picture, we begin to contrast it with what the claimants are saying. The claimants are saying X happened. And over time, we need to begin to develop a picture to say, no, in fact, Y happened. And in doing that, we bring together the documents. We bring together the witnesses. We tell a story. And it's a real exercise of storytelling for a tribunal, And in doing so, we obviously have to remain faithful to what the law is. So we are saying to the tribunal, both in our written submissions and ultimately in the hearing when we present the case orally, that Costa Rica complied with all of its obligations. And this is why. One, two, three, four, five. So it's a big exercise of pulling all the threads together and contrasting with what the claimants are saying.
0: In the lead-up to the hearing, were there any specific issues that you encountered or challenges and even Before the hearing and and during the early days of the case, what would you say some of the the most challenging situations were that came up?
2: There are a few, of course. Every case has its own surprises. We had a very extensive process of interviewing witnesses, of interviewing officials from the government. Uh, It was very important for us to understand our case and understand what had happened. That took quite a lot of time, all being done in Spanish, Uh, being undertaken in Costa Rica. The other challenge, really, and and this is something we shouldn't lose sight of, the international arbitration process involves a lot of written advocacy. So you are combining, I think, the perfect combination of a science and the art of law. The science is the fact-gathering, the preparation of your evidence, the analysis, discussion in a group and with your client, of what is good evidence, what is bad, how to construct a case... The art, I think, is the art of persuasion, and that takes place both in writing through the written submissions, which is a large part of the work, and that's a huge team effort, but also then the hearing itself. And the art of persuasion there is both through our oral arguments and the cross-examination that we undertook. And so a lot of us were involved in cross-examining. It wasn't just me. There were uh, two or three others who were cross-examining witnesses and experts. And that's the really fun part, because that's when you get to put some tough questions to some very well-prepared fact witnesses and experts. And that, of course, presents challenges. You have to think on your feet. You often are encountered by responses you're not expecting. And then the tribunal, and particularly in this case, we had a very active tribunal and a very active American arbitrator who, midway through one of the fact witnesses' cross-examination, decided to give the fact witness quote-unquote homework and basically asked the fact witness to prepare a table and with certain answers. And we were somewhat terrified as to what was going to take place because this is a slightly unconventional approach from the arbitrator. Normally the questions that are placed to a witness within the context of what they've written in their witness statement. So that gave us a slight heart-in-mouth moment. The witness did very well and answered the questions as we were anticipating. And wasn't too nervous on the day, but that was one real challenge, and I think and particularly challenge for that witness.
0: and what what exactly is cross-examination? If you could just explain from a procedural standpoint, what what does that involve? Is it like being in court or how is it different if it is at all?
2: Yeah, it's exactly as you might see in the movies. So sometimes it's a little more stilted and slow. It's not quite Perry Mason or um you know law and order. Um, uh, it's basically when you put questions to a witness and you are trying to catch them out and find inconsistencies or untruths in their testimony. And that you can do by reference to what they've said before, by reference to what the documents say, by reference to what other witnesses are saying. And, of course, you're trying to exploit perhaps some nervousness on their part, but you're also trying to take out of the equation the lawyer's Because lawyers are often involved in helping to prepare witnesses for their written witness statements. And when it's just you and a witness, you're really trying to test their own recollection. And that's often where you get to the truth, because that's when they really tell you what they think. And that's really what, like we're saying, that's the fun part of it, because it's when you begin to see the case really take shape and you begin to see the facts as they really are.
1: Yes, and I guess that one of the best parts of the cross-examination is when you prepare questions for the witness or the expert to lose their credibility. So you need to Google absolutely everything about the person who is going to be cross-examined. And you get with the most amazing and awesome information. uh, And you can use that with information that you got from Google to uh, make questions, to prepare questions to the tribunal will think twice when listening to his uh, testimony. Yep. Testimony, thank you.
0: Yeah, I remember in one case a witness had written that he'd gotten a qualification, an engineer, that he'd become an engineer, and when you worked backwards, he'd become an engineer at the age of 13. <laughs> so, yeah, LinkedIn, those types of things can be quite helpful sometimes. And so I understand the hearing was, was broadcast live, and so there was public access to the proceedings. And I'm just wondering, was there any public reaction to the case? I mean, do people even watch these things?
1: With public reaction, do you mean family? Because I had all my family in Argentina watching the hearing and saying, taking pictures of the screen and sending it to me while I was in the hearing. I don't know why they thought that I was going to be able to, to see those pictures, saying, you are on the TV. So that was amazing. But I think that Christian received serious comments from other people.
2: Yeah, we. I mean, there was a lot of chat. There was a lot of also lobbying, I think, in part supported by the claimants. So the U.S. investors were, I think, in some ways, either directly or indirectly, well supported by certain journalists who were blogging a lot about this case and were clearly in favor of the the U.S. investors' approach, were against the case of costa rica and so we saw some quite pointed journalism at the time during and after the hearing and also a number of months after the hearing so that actually tested us slightly because it's tempting to want to respond to those trolls and those attacks but we essentially paid to turn the other cheek in those situations we are representing costa rica we have to rise above it and um, and that was one of the major reactions during the hearing and afterwards
0: so what would you say the benefit is of working on a case like this and, and getting experience on a case like this for a trainee's future in the law?
2: I would hope those who are interested in joining Herbert Smith Hills as a trainee would be really attracted at this opportunity. And there are many such opportunities if you join the firm. It, it, it's really the pinnacle of international law and international practice. It's why we get up in the morning and do what we do. There's a public service element, I have to say, in that when you're involved in representing a state, of course, we often represent investors. But that public dimension, that public significance is really powerful. And I think a lot of people who are considering a training contract at the firm have that interest. Even if you then want to go into corporate law or finance or real estate or something else, these cases are really good at showing you the way litigators need to think. And showing the way that clients need to respond to problems. So as a litigation seat in and of itself. It's a great training as a lawyer. You get to see how things develop when they go wrong. Uh, That helps you anticipate those problems as a commercial or corporate lawyer and even though this is a very public case and involved a state, we have many cases of this kind involving private corporations and the same disciplines are learned. So you don't have to want to be a litigator to enjoy these these seats in these, in these types of cases.
0: Thanks very much for tuning into our podcast. If you'd like to listen to other podcasts in this series or learn more about graduate opportunities at HSF in general, please visit our website careers.herbertsmithfreehills.com slash UK slash grads.